Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell, and I am flying solo this week. You are stuck with, with just Scott. Father Peter Mustett, my co-host, is out in San Francisco at the Walk for Life, uh, the West Coast version. So some of you have heard of the big March for Life um, that's happening in Washington, D.C. this weekend. Uh, Well, Father Peter is leading a group of our students here from the University of Colorado to the West Coast version of that, which is out in San Francisco. And we've been really proud to support that um, for the last couple of years. It's a a growing witness in that part of the country. So we're, we're grateful for that. So please keep Father Peter and our students in your prayers. But for now, again... You're stuck with me. So we're going to be looking today at the the readings for Mass from the third Sunday of Ordinary Time. And our first reading this week is going to be coming from the book of Isaiah. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 23 through chapter 9, verse 3. And then our responsorial psalm this week is coming from Psalm number 27, verse 1, verse 4, and then verse 13 through 14. Our second reading is coming from the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, and then jumping all the way to verse 17. And lastly, we're getting the Gospel of Matthew. There's two different versions um, or or lengths, I suppose, that you have a choice of hearing this week. And we're going to do, as always, the slightly longer one. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23, which... um, is actually a really neat passage that I'm excited to get to. So, all right, first things first, we're starting to talk about Isaiah. And as I have said time and time again, mainly because Isaiah shows up in our liturgical cycle as Catholics so stinking often, it is, I have a great love for Isaiah, but uh, somebody actually called me out on this because I, I think I said maybe on a past podcast that Isaiah is one of my least favorite books. And I don't mean that somebody, somebody called me out. I don't mean it that I don't love the book of Isaiah and how beautiful and profound it is. I just meant that it stresses me out because it is such a complex and complicated book. Because um, it's not that you can't just kind of open Isaiah or hear these readings that we get in Mass and be be inspired and be edified and, and hear these really beautiful prophecies. Some of the most well-known, famous prophecies, particularly uh, about the birth of the Messiah. A lot of the Christmas narrative actually comes from Isaiah. And they are beautiful and clear and profound, but taken as a whole... The book is so long and so complex, and there is so much depth. There's such a a key, in a real way, for understanding the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament packed into this book that it's... um, it's, the big picture of it is it's hard to wrap one's head around. So Isaiah kind of begins his ministry and his prophecy in the time after Israel's a nation have had their civil war. So they've split into, there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And it's dealing in the period before the nation of Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom, hauls them off into slavery. But he also looks forward to the time when the Babylonian empire is going to conquer the southern kingdom where Jerusalem and the temple are. Um, Watch that uh, uh, kingdom be hauled off into slavery. But it also looks even further than that ahead to the day when the kingdom will be restored, and then further than that, to the the day when the Messiah will come and set things right, and then even further than that, all the way to the end of time, the, the end of earthly time when the new heavens and the new earth will come. So, I mean, the span and the breadth and, and depth of this book um, is 
it, it's beautiful, but everything in me is a little stressed by it just because it's so it's so much to kind of wrap one's head around. But luckily, we're getting a, a bit of a bite-sized piece this week. So we're, we're kind of in the beginning of the book. We're in chapter 8, which comes pretty shortly after Isaiah's call. So there's this famous scene in chapter 6 where Isaiah is caught up in this vision into God's throne room, and he's given this vocation of, of basically being this voice to call Israel back um, and to, to show them uh, who their God is and what they ought to do. Um, and where we pick it up here, sort of at the bridge between chapter eight and nine, it's looking forward. So the, the big section is looking forward to the Assyrians who are going to come and conquer the Northern kingdom. And they're going to come and take it over and haul them off into slavery. And, and it, this passage sort of presumes that you understand what a dark period Israel's dealing with in this point. So again, like I mentioned, Israel's already had a big kind of internal civil war. They've split into the 12 tribes are divided now, uh, brother against brother, family against family. It's a really ugly time. And, and a lot of what sort of historically and politically caused this was alliances that, that both kingdoms really made that were far from what the scriptures tell us was the plan of God. And really the problem that you get over and over and over again is Israel being asked to put their trust in God, to move forward in faith, knowing that they are actually called to be a different kind of a kingdom than the rest of the kingdoms of the earth. And Israel constantly, both north and south, constantly saying, well, that's that's a great idea, but we need some insurance policies, right? We need some backup. So we're going to create this alliance with Egypt just in case, or we're going to form a military alliance or a financial alliance with Babylon or with the, the Syrians or the Armenians or, or whatever it is. We're going to put our faith in something other than God. And those military and economic and political alliances always end up causing so much destruction and chaos for Israel. And that's really the story of the Old Testament, which I think it's fascinating just on a historical political level to, re to read this narrative. But on a spiritual level, it says, look, life is complicated. Life is difficult. And we have as human beings so many different options as to where we can put our trust, where we can put our hope, where we can sort of put our spiritual insurance policies. And it, if we do it in things that are not God, there will always be consequences for that. And so this sort of scenario is assumed on you when we pick up the reading this week. And so what this particular prophecy is saying is pointing toward, and again, this is where the time frame is confusing. Assyria has not yet attacked and conquered the northern kingdom. They're about to. They're right on the verge of it. This is going to happen around the year 722 BC or so. This is about to happen, but this prophecy we get this week is looking past that. After that happens, then there is really, as dark as that time is going to be, there's going to eventually be restoration. And so what the prophet says is this, first, the Lord degraded the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way, they're two of the 12 tribes. And when the land of Israel, way, 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 way back in the book of Joshua, when they come out of the ex, uh, uh, out of uh, the Exodus period, right, out of slavery in Egypt, and they allot the land and which tribes are going to uh, inhabit different parts of what will become Israel. Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali occupied these positions in the northernmost and westernmost most sort of reaches of the land of Israel, the Holy Land. And so um, that's going to be very important in just a minute. So here's what it says. The Lord degraded the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, 
But in the end, the Lord has glorified the seaward road. The seaward road, there was actually a, a fairly major highway in that time that reached from Egypt to Damascus, which was sometimes called the way of the sea. That, that seems to be what this prophecy is talking about. But Zebulun and Naphtali, being the, the furthest north and the furthest west of the tribal lands, they were the first to go down. So when the Assyrian nation did come in and begin to attack and slaughter and haul off into exile the Israelite people, they were the first to go. And so when it talks about them being degraded, it means it in the sense that they fell before any of the other tribes and any of the rest of the kingdom. So they were sort of, yeah, almost iconic in um, uh what was to come. They were they were the precursor, sort of the, I don't want to quite call it a foreshadowing because they really were part of Israel that was going down, but it happened before the rest. And so it pointed, they embodied what was going to happen to everybody else, which I think, I don't mean to stretch it, but I think that's an important point for the gospels coming up. Um, so it says, but in the end, he's going to glorify this part of the world. The land west of the Jordan, the district of the Gentiles. This is where the non-Jews are going to eventually settle. And this is going to be kind of problematic in the time of Jesus. It says, anguish has taken wing, dispelled is darkness, for there is no gloom, for there is no gloom where but now there was distress. The people who walked in darkness, the people up in these northern reaches, they have seen a great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing as they rejoice before you as at the harvest, as people who make merry when dividing spoils. For the yoke that burdened them, the pole on their shoulder, that's a significant image, right? Carrying something heavy on your shoulder. Interesting. The rod of their taskmaster, that's a reference to Pharaoh in Egypt. You have smashed is on the day of Midian. And if you go on, that's all we get in mass. But if you go on reading it, it says, if you jump ahead a couple lines, the reason for this, why has this gloom and this darkness and this degradation really, why is all that being taken away? Well, because it says light has come. Well, what is the light? Well, if you fast forward a couple verses, it says, for to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given. And it's the, the passage where it says, he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is the stuff that we read at Christmas time, right? The season that we're just coming out of. Why is Zebulun and Naphtali, this land that was degraded, and shrouded in darkness. Why is the gloom being taken away? Why is it going to be like the new harvest things coming back to life? Because this light is coming. What is the light? It's the child. And that's where we're sort of left. And again, Isaiah is given this prophecy before they've actually fallen and looking ahead to the restoration, which is way beyond that. And we're left with that. So we're left with this passage of really profound hope. And, and that's going to come back into play big time in the gospel. Jesus actually quotes this, pa- or rather, I don't, I don't know if Jesus does, but Matthew certainly quotes this passage when we come to the gospel story. So we'll leave Isaiah there and let's move on to the psalm. So Psalm 27, the yeah, it's familiar to a lot of us. The Lord is my light and my salvation, right? Um, which I want to burst into song with, but I will refrain myself because Father Peter's not here to, to give me dirty looks. But the Lord is my light and my salvation. So a little bit of the context of Psalm 27, Psalms 20, Psalm 27 historically was understood to be one of the Psalms written by David, um, who write, writes a great deal of, of Psalms. But the context traditionally is believed to be this, this Davidic, triumphant, confident 
prayer to God to deliver him from all who were conspiring against him. So remember, David, um, before he sort of took the throne and took power in Israel as Israel's best known king, he was chased by enemies. He was he was pursued by Saul, who was the previous Israelite king, who knew that David was going to be the next king or probably going to be the better king. And it was a threat to Saul and he pursued him and sought his life and chased him through the wilderness and tried to kill him time and time again. And David spent literally years knowing his true identity as the king of Israel, but on the run from his own people, from his own subjects, who his own you know future military who were out to get him and seeking his life. And so this is his prayer reflecting presumably on that, saying, but I knew where my hope was. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? Shall I fear Saul, the king who's coming after me? Shall I fear his armies and all of these, these people seeking after me? No, because the Lord is my life's refuge. Of whom shall I be afraid? I don't need to fear those things. There's one thing I ask of the Lord to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And I trust and I have confidence that that's going to happen. And if you recount and recall the circumstances of David's life in this time, it's a pretty profound prayer. This is not the prayer of a guy who's sitting on his gold-studded throne saying, oh, I trust in God because everything's awesome. It's the prayer of a guy saying, everyone was out to get me. They sought my life. They tried to kill me. And I understood who I was, but no one else seemed to. And no one else seemed to care. And the thing that I'm, I'm kind of connecting the dots with here is that we know, again, in kind of the big picture from the first reading and knowing the history of Israel that Isaiah is speaking into, our problems in the Bible, our human, our problems as humans, but in the course of salvation history, Israel's problems always come when they put their trust in things other than God. And I'll tell you what, if there's ever been a guy who had every right to be ticked off and impatient and say, I need what's mine, I need what's coming to me, it was David, who knew, he was, he was ordained, he was uh, consecrated by Samuel, he knew he was king, he knew his identity, and yet David dwelt in patience. He said, I'm not going to grasp. I'm not going to grab at what I know is mine because I'm going to wait on the Lord because the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. So whom shall I fear? Who do I need to worry about being out to get me? Do I need to seek after alliances with other powerful people? Do I need to you know, put my money in this place so I can make sure it's safe. Do I need to make friends with, you know, all of these allies to try to, you know, build up my reserves? No, I will be patient. I will wait. And if that means running for my life from time to time because of people who deny what I know is my true identity, then so be it because the Lord is my God. The Lord is my light. He is my rock. He is my refuge. And if he wants me to wait, then I'm going to wait. And I love that story because David embodies in a lot of ways the antithesis to the rest of what Israel politically does. Now, is, David has his downfall. I mean, he, he makes some pretty bad decisions. He, you know, he, he's not, a, he's not a, um, <laughs> a perfect saint at all times. But David's um, glory is also that he recognizes the bad points in his life, too. And he knows where he didn't put his trust and his faith in the Lord. And the Psalms are a reflection of that. So it's, it's this great embodiment icon of what Israel was supposed to be. Which then brings us to First Corinthians, and it's it's always a little bit difficult because our our time frame and the way that you know you kind of trace how the readings work through salvation history. The second reading is commentary on the gospel, which we haven't talked about yet, so that's always hard in my head to kind of put it in context. But um, 
it really is the same thing. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, which is one of the, how do I say this lightly? I mean, I, what I want to say is it's one of the worst churches in the New Testament world. And I, I mean that because Paul really highlights in his letters to this church their profound sin and how far from the mind of God they seem to be in all these ways. The city of Corinth, we know that Corinth historically was morally decadent. It was, um, you know, there was a whole lot of moral, ethical sins and all sorts of things going around. around. It had a really bad reputation. But what we see in the letters of Paul to the Corinthians is that the church, yeah, the culture was, was rough. The culture was a mess. There was a lot of immorality and a lot of sin going on. But Paul's not worried about the immorality of the culture. Paul is worried that the culture has very much seeped into the church. And it's not just that the culture is corrupt, it's that the church has become corrupt and they've become like the world. And you even get the sense throughout the course of this letter that maybe they've even become worse than the culture in some ways, which might have shocked Catholics at a different time in human history, but it probably shouldn't shock you nowadays because we know how frail we are as a church. We know how frail some of our leaders are. We know how easy it is to fall into grave sin. And we've seen a church that does that. So this should kind of be speaking our language in a certain sense. It also tells us that there's kind of nothing new under the sun, right? This has sort of always been the danger, always been the way in the church. And so Paul says, as he's beginning this letter, and I've given you the context a little, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. And Paul, there's a lot of immorality going on. There's sexual sin. There's there's liturgical abuse. There's a lot of things that Paul will unpack in the course of this letter. But here at the very beginning, as he's laying the foundation, he says, look, for my money, it seems like one of the biggest foundational problems is division. You're divided. You know, the, the word diabolos, which sometimes we use in reference to Satan, to the evil one, literally means to divide. Satan is the divider. And what does he want to do? Satan wants to drive a wedge between you and the people in your life. He wants to drive a wedge between you and your pastor, between your pastor and his bishop, between, you know, you and the person next to you at mass. He wants to divide us because when he can divide us, that's when everything can, um, that's when he can attack. And again, historically, it's hard for me to read that and not see the story of salvation history that's played out in the book of Isaiah. Because by the time that the northern kingdom is attacked by the Assyrian Empire, Israel, the holy people of God, the royal priesthood, the kingly people that he has set aside as his segula, his special possession, they have divided among themselves. And you have family against family, tribe against tribe, brother against brother. They've already given into that. And the rest of the course of salvation history shows in a certain sense how easy it is to pick them off. Because Israel stopped being what they were supposed to be, which was God's family. And they became a family of infighters and and hated one another and went to war with one another. And it became very easy then to create other alliances, to put our faith and our trust elsewhere. That's the story of the Old Testament. And what Paul is saying, with full knowledge, he was one of the most learned Jewish scholars of his day. And he's saying, I know this story. The church must not do that. Because Paul also understands that the church is the new Israel, and we can't head down that road. But I've, it's been reported to me, he says, that there's divisions. You're divided. 
But I want you to be united in the same mind, in the same purpose. For it's been reported to you, to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people, that there are rivalries among you. And I mean that each of you is saying, well, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized under the name of Paul? The divisions that are happening in the church in Corinth, apparently, are divisions of personality cults, right? So there's believers who are like, well, I'm a better Christian than you are because I'm more of a Paul Christian, right? I'm more of a Paul believer. And some other people are like, no, I'm really more of a, a Kephas. Kephas is, is uh, the Aramaic name for Peter, right? Oh, I'm more of a Peter Christian. I think he's kind of the one that I want to be like. And other people are like, no, I think Paul or, or Apollos, he's, he's really the one that we want to kind of strive for. I'm more of an Apollos kind of Christian. And believe it or not, there's actually some <laughs> We're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more of a Jesus Christian. I'm more of a Christ kind of a guy. And, and Paul's like, wait a second. Have you literally just put Jesus Christ in the same category as me? Or in the same category as Peter, the fisherman who tried to cut off that guy's ear and denied Jesus three times. Are you seriously putting us all in the same category as though we are all kind of different options of people to be like? Paul, uh, Paul says, I, you were not crucified in my name. I was not crucified, uh, rather, I was not crucified for you. You weren't baptized in my name. You're baptized in Jesus' name, in the name of the Trinity, of which he is a part. You, He was crucified for you. I am not God. Peter's not God. Apollos isn't God. We are not the Savior. We are not the light of the world. For Pete's sake, you are putting all of your alliances and your faith and trust in human beings, and you've missed that Jesus is the sole figure that we can put our faith in because he is the light that will dispel all of that darkness of the first reading. He is, was the child who would come to set all of the world right. And Paul says later on, he's like, thank goodness I didn't baptize most of you guys because you might be tempted to worship me because you guys seem to have no clue, but it's dividing you. And I have a friend who used to always say, you know, Christianity is a personality cult. But there's only one personality, right? It's only Jesus. And to the degree that we're like, well, I really am super into that. Devotions are one thing. And I'm sure there's many among you who like have a particular devotion to a particular saint. That's cool. That's awesome. You know, we, we, you might be really into different Marian prayers or, or interested in, you know, some of the apparitions like Lourdes or Fatima, or you might really dig St. Teresa of Avila or, or St. John of the Cross or St. Francis. That's great as long as we never make the mistake of conflating those things with Jesus or those people with Jesus. Or like, oh man, you know, I hear a lot of people say things like, oh, I'm, I'm totally a Francis Catholic. I'm, I'm big time a Francis Catholic. And other people are like, no, I'm more of a Benedict Catholic. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this is ridiculous. We are Jesus Catholics and there is nothing else. And to the degree that we lose sight of that and to the degree that those figures stop pointing us toward Jesus, then we've missed it. And that's Paul's point, because if we don't recognize this, then we're going to miss the very same problems that led Israel into the troubles that she got into throughout the course of salvation history. So what's the solution? What's the way out? Well, that's what we get to in the Gospels. It's it's actually a beautifully threaded together um, stream of narrative in the readings this week, I think. So Matthew Matthew 4, rather, is where we pick it up. And it's um, this moment when Jesus essentially comes back from the temptation in the wilderness. So he was baptized by John the Baptist. Remember that scene where John was like, oh, man, it's you. You know, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie your sandals. How can I baptize you? And Jesus asks him to do it, and he enters into this. Um, 
um, baptism, and then he goes forth from there. He, he sort, in a certain sense, Jesus's baptism is his public coronation, so to speak, because it's at his baptism when we see the the clouds departed, the, the heavens open, and there's a voice of God the Father, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, which is a quote from David. Actually, we talked about David a little bit ago. God uh, in the Gospels, when Jesus is baptized, quotes Psalm 2, which was believed to be a psalm written by King David at the coronation of his son Saul, uh, of his son Solomon. Sorry, not Saul. <laughs> Saul didn't like him. But at the coronation of his son Solomon. And that line, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, that was read by the king during the crowning of his son. And that was something that was culturally done in Israel, and people would have recognized that. So when Jesus is baptized, he is crowned. He's always been king, but this is the moment that is sort of made manifest. And of course, he goes from there to the wilderness, which was in a certain sense, understood to be kind of picking a fight with the evil one. The wilderness was understood to be the domain of Satan. It's where it was scary and there were bandits and animals and it was just kind of a freaky place. And Jesus, as his first act after his coronation, goes to the domain of the evil one. And he essentially picks a fight in a certain sense. And he's like, you're not going to have my people any longer. And then he goes from there and he comes out of the wilderness and we pick it up here in chapter four. And it says, then Jesus heard that John had been arrested. And we know the story of John, you know, Herod and, and Herodias, his brother's wife, and this kind of um, uh, uh, sordid affair that, that's going on that John speaks truth into power. And he ends up being imprisoned and then losing his head over. Spoiler alert. Um, but Jesus hears about this. And, and here's the thing about Jesus. And I know we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it bears note again. Jesus, when he hears that his cousin and the forerunner to his mission, the voice in the wilderness, when he hears that he's been arrested, Jesus withdraws. He goes away because, you know, sometimes the gospel is oversimplified into simply being a story about God coming to earth to be killed for us. He came so that he could die. That, that's an adage that's been thrown out, which is not true. Yes, it is appropriate that he gives the ultimate and total sacrifice of himself for us. But he came not just to die. He came to build a church. He came to fulfill the prophecies. He came to bring the light back into the darkness, to set right what was set wrong, to restore the kingdom of Israel to what it was always meant to be. And so when Jesus hears that John's imprisoned, he says, I've not completed my task here yet. It's not time for me to die. He probably knows what's coming, but he also knows it's not time yet. Jesus spends a good deal of the Gospels evading death. People always want to kill him, right? They want to throw him off cliffs. They want to stone him. There's kings who want to, they kill literally all the babies around him trying to get to him. Jesus, <coughs> excuse me. Jesus is constantly evading death. So, <coughs> excuse me. So he hears that John is arrested. He withdraws to the Galilee. He goes up north, right? He was in Nazareth, his hometown, right? Kind of in the southern region of the Galilee, which is a huge body of water. And he goes way north to the city called Capernaum, which is a much bigger city than Nazareth. And Capernaum will become basically his base of operations. It's a fairly bustling city. It's pretty far north in the land of, of Israel, the Holy Land. And that will become kind of his headquarters. And everything he does for a while, at least, will kind of come and go from Capernaum. 
which is tactical in a certain sense. I mean, there's a strategy to that. It's a more populous place. It's easier to get places. Um, but there's a spiritual significance and there's a prophetic significance that Matthew clearly gets. I'm sure Jesus does too. Though Matthew points out, he left Nazareth and he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, tribes that don't really exist anymore. Why did he do that? Well, Matthew says, so that what had been said through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in a land overshadowed by death, a light has risen. And from that time on, it says, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that the first public words out of Jesus's mouth are not, hey, salvation is here. Hey, believe in all of these things and you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven when you die. He doesn't say that stuff. He says, no, turn around from what you're doing, from the false places you're putting your trust and your faith and your alliances, because the true kingdom is is at hand. Kingdom of heaven, by the way, that's a shorthand in the Old Testament to speak of the kingdom of Israel. It was called in different times the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in the hands of men. This is, I think, make no mistake, what Jesus is talking about. Not some abstract place in our heart or simply a place that we're going to go when we die is at hand. Rather, the kingdom that was promised to us is coming back. It is so close you could reach out and grab it. It's at hand. And it only it, it's only appropriate that Jesus begins this national restoration in the very place that it started to go down. And it's appropriate that he goes to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali to begin building the kingdom back up because that was the place that the kingdom began to be dismantled. And precisely where the kingdom started to be destroyed, Jesus starts to restore. And he will move from Zebulun and Naphtali through Capernaum, down through the region of the Galilee, into, he goes to Samaria at one point, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, which eventually fell in 722. He makes his way southward, and then eventually he goes into what was the southern kingdom of Judah, and he makes his way all the way to Jerusalem, the capital city. He literally follows the trajectory of the exile of Israel which started in Zebulun and Naphtali when the Assyrians knocked them down, culminated when Samaria fell as the capital of the northern kingdom. Jesus goes there too. And then later, a few years later in salvation history in the Old Testament, the Babylonians come in from the same route and they go into the southern kingdom and they destroy Jerusalem and they knock down the temple and exile is there in earnest. Jesus literally walks the same path that exile walked in rebuilding the kingdom where he culminates and climaxes everything precisely where it all fell. At the site, not of the old temple that went down, the brick and mortar one, but he then becomes the temple, which falls just like the old one did. But unlike the old one, he rises gloriously. Yes, they rebuilt the temple. And it wasn't as glorious as it used to be. And then eventually the Romans destroyed it again. And that one was never rebuilt. Jesus, however, is rebuilt. Rebuilt seems like such a trite way to say it, doesn't it? He is restored. He is resurrected. He embodies 
the restoration of all that was. It's not enough, though, for Jesus here to say, just believe in these things and maybe you'll go to heaven. He says, no, I've come to build back up the kingdom, which is real because it's not just a place in the sky. It's not just a a feeling in your heart. It's a, a flesh and blood, brick and mortar, tangible, reach out and touch it reality because we are human beings and we need things that we can reach out and touch. And sometimes the church looks like it's going down. And sometimes the things even that Jesus restored seem like they're hanging on by a thread, which is why Jesus will say later on, guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail against this kingdom that I have built, which he wouldn't have needed to say if it wouldn't appear from time to time that the gates of hell were about to prevail over the church. But he says, now they won't. But you, you, brothers and sisters, you put your faith in me. You understand that I am the light. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the child who is coming to restore everything back to its place. And I, I, I end with that because that's how the gospel ends. There's, there's a part two to the gospel, and some of you won't hear this in Mass, some of you will. But right after this, it says, As he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, later on he's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the sea. They, they weren't, you know, it wasn't like a lazy Saturday where they're off fishing. They're, this is their job. This is their career. They're, they're trying to make ends meet and put food on the table, right? And Jesus said to them, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. This is strange in the Jewish worldview because in the Jewish world, there it was fairly common to follow and sort of uh, be, um, to, to be a follower of a rabbi, to go after them, to be apprenticed, to apprentice a rabbi and to learn from them and accompany them. But the way that it worked in the Jewish world of Jesus' time is that people would find a rabbi that they found compelling or inspirational or whatever, or learned, and they would seek to follow. They would come after the rabbi and say, may I follow you. It was unprecedented, in a certain sense, unthinkable that a rabbi would go to a would-be disciple and say, hey, you follow me. That's the opposite of how it worked. Because in a certain sense, it's, it's <laughs> needy is not the right word, but I wonder if people were like, man, can you not even get disciples? Oh, great rabbi, you got to go find your own. People don't come flock to you. But if Jesus is who we claim that he is, then it is appropriate that God comes after us. It would be great if we had the sense all the time to go after God who we need. But God also knows that we don't always know what we need that we sometimes do wander on the wrong path, that we put our faith and our trust in things that we ought not. So he comes looking for us, which is such a beautiful scene. And here, when they hear the call, they follow. They drop everything. And then it goes on and talks about uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John. They do the same thing. They leave everything behind and they go after him. They follow him. And it says he went all around Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. What he is proclaiming is the kingdom that was lost is now being rebuilt. That that was darkness is now being brought to light. And he begins where it's only appropriate to begin. Because that's how much God cares about our lives. That's how much he cares about every single detail of his kingdom, of our lives, of who we are, of our geographies, of our hometowns, of our jobs, of our careers, of our families. He cares so much about all of it that he's going to walk in the midst of all of it so that his feet may set foot in every aspect and every part of our lives. 
so that he can take it all with him as he goes to the cross, dies with it, and then transforms it into new life. That's, in a certain sense, what we're looking at this week. So, that's what I got, you guys. Um, I obviously miss Father Peter. Please pray for him. Uh, We will be back together next week with a brand new podcast, so tune in then. And until then, please keep us in your prayers. Thanks, you guys. We love you a lot. See you next time. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.